I'm convinced that when Reformed preachers get done their study and prayer time, they ought to rise up and feel like Pentecostals. They're so full of joy and praise for the sovereignty and goodness of their Lord. I first worked on this Daniel material. I'm looking at the dates on my notes back in 1983. That's when I actually had more time in Franklin Square to do the kinds of studies that went into this. And this morning when I was going over this material again, I was powerfully impressed again with how magnificent this material is in Daniel chapter 7. There is a lot to do in the time that we have. This is going to be a real race, uh, so you're going to have to put on your seat belts. But I'm convinced by the time we get done, you will be in awe of the greatness and goodness of the Lord who has established a kingdom that will have no end. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, you are the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God to whom alone belongs all glory and honor now and evermore. And to that we, with all praise, say our Amen. And we ask our ascended and reigning Lord that you will show us your great power and your triumph over all of your and our enemies that we might see how true your word is and be reminded of it afresh, but also so that we might go forth with confidence as we call others to bow in faith and repentance before the Lord of lords and King of kings. And so do good things in us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 7. In the two hours that we have this morning, it is... Uh, my responsibility to take you through two rich chapters. So as I said, you're going to have to have your seatbelts on and pay close attention. Daniel chapter 7 for this first session. Matthew Henry, as he introduced Daniel chapter 7, said in introducing the second half of the book of Daniel, the six former chapters of this book were historical. We enter now with fear and trembling upon the six latter chapters, which are prophetical, wherein are many things dark and hard to understand, which we dare not positively determine the sense of, and yet many things plain and profitable, which I trust God will enable us to make a good use of. And that's my sentiments exactly. Chapters 7 through 12 are the visions that Daniel sees during the period of time in the events of chapters 1 through 6. You've got to keep that in mind. Chapters 1 through 6 span the whole period in which Daniel was involved in the empire of Babylon. Chapters 7 through 12 have visions that occur during that time period. In chapters 1 through 6, there is a general picture of events to come. That is, events future to Daniel, or at least primarily future to Daniel. Chapters 7 through 12 are visions that are more specific and more detailed. They are more specific and detailed visions of what is given generally in the visions of chapter 1 through 6. Now we should ask as we begin this material, at least what we're able to cover today, what our attitude must be as we deal with these texts. These things are not given to feed the flames of our curiosity. Truth in the Scriptures is always unto the end of godliness. So Paul tells Titus in Titus 1 and verse 1. These are parts of an entire Scripture given to equip us unto every good work. Remember that God's people in the Savior are to be equipped to do all things to His glory. And while there will be disagreements on the details of interpretation in this material, there must be agreement on the overall applications of them. And that's where we're going to focus our concern as we go through these details. Now in your syllabus, there's a little statement, you can fill in the blank on this. We must give ourselves more to application of prophecy than speculation about them. Now, I'm going to, in time, really spend more time on filling in some of the blanks of what prophecy means, but we want to give more attention to application of the prophecy than to speculation 
about it. So that all by way of introduction. Now in Daniel chapter 7, we're going to start at verse 1 and then jump to verses 15 through 17, looking at the vision and its interpretation. So don't get confused. We're going to start at verse 1, jump to verses 15 to 17, and then we're going to uh, look. We're going to look at the vision and its interpretation, and then break it down. So Daniel 7 and verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, now notice we're going back to the events that actually preceded last night's account. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. This is shortly after Nebuchadnezzar dies. The glory of the head of gold is beginning to decline. The captive Israelites during this period are wondering what will become next. Because remember, these were leaders with ultimate authority. Nebuchadnezzar had mellowed in his treatment toward the end of his life, but his successors could be fierce persecutors. And therefore, there was a sense of psychological upheaval to the people when a new leader came and they wondered what's going to come next. It was a time of uncertainty. Daniel was given visions to encourage those in exile and to prepare them for what's ahead. The vision in chapter 7 is given in Aramaic. It is for the Babylonians to read as well as others. Beginning in chapter 8, it's written in Hebrew for reasons we'll cover in the next hour. So Daniel is given visions and he wrote down the main facts. That is, he wrote down the chief contents. He omitted minor details of these dreams and these visions that were given to him. Dreams and visions, again, were means by which God made his will known to his people before the scripture was incomplete, before it was complete. And he wrote these things down because visions in the scriptures are not given for private purposes. They are given for the church. They are given for the edification of God's people. So he writes down these visions. Now let's go to verses 15 to 18 and see what the interpretation of these visions is, what it is, and then we'll go back to the earlier verses. In verse 15, I, Daniel, is writing now about his vision. He says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. These events, and particularly those in chapter 8, are very disconcerting to Daniel. In fact, the material in Daniel 8 will be very disconcerting to you. This ends on a high note. Daniel 8 really doesn't. But Daniel is very upset by these things that he sees. Now notice this is an interesting vision. There's a sense in which Daniel is actually part of that vision. I came near to one of those who stood by. He is dreaming all of this and he sees himself coming near to one of these people in the dream. And I asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. He is on scene with a multitude of attendants at the throne and he asks concerning these horrible pictures he's already seen but that we're going to get the interpretation of now. Tell me, he says, the certain truth of these things. Verse 17 begins the answer. And that's going to interpret the dream. Then we'll go back and fill in the, the blanks. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. These beasts equal kings or kingdoms. In verse 23, it's clear that the king is equivalent with a kingdom. Kings or kingdoms, which are actual historical kingdoms that would come from the time of Daniel. Now that's important for you to understand. This is not looking at some future millennial kingdom, something future to us. This is speaking of, these are speaking of kingdoms that would come. Verse 18, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. The saints are to literally receive and possess that kingdom. They are to enter into and enjoy that kingdom and it will be enjoyed forever by the saints. Again, this is not speaking of a future millennial kingdom. This is speaking of saints who enter the kingdom by salvation. Colossians 1 verses 13 and 14. Listen to the language of salvation in the New Testament. He rescued us 
God rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and translated us. He put us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. He put us in as those conquered and put under the yoke of the King. He has translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the kingdom spoken of in verse 18, the kingdom that we now know of as the church. Verse 15, I, Daniel, he says, was grieved in my spirit with these things that came about. Now, probably the best way you can understand this is to think of watching a panoramic horror movie with Dolby Stereo and all these uh, spectacular things that can be done that sweep you up in them and will scare you. That's kind of what happens with Daniel. Daniel's given a vision. Why why is he receiving visions? Daniel is receiving visions that envelop his being. They affect his sight. They affect his smell. They affect, it would seem, even all of his sense of hearing. Because these are real-world events that are going to sweep up God's people and affect them, body and soul. And Daniel then is very, very much agitated. His body contracts. He is in great alarm. He is troubled. He is all strung out and he is scared because these are awesome things that are going to come. Now, let's go back to verses 2 through 8. These are kingdoms that are going to come. Let's go back now to 2 through 8 and let's see these specifics that come. Here is the vision of the four beasts. And these, this vision is parallel to the great statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. It represents the same kingdoms. There we had man's perspective. It was a statue of a man. The kingdoms in the early part of Daniel, especially Daniel 2, from man's perspective, here it is from God's perspective. The kingdoms as man sees them are beasts from God's perspective. Men becoming like virtual animals in the kingdoms that they establish. One thinks of Thomas Hobbes' old political dissertation called the Leviathan, in which the state was seen as a beast. And you don't have to think hard to think of how states can take on beastly characters. Verse 2. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night this thing that enveloped him and made him afraid of kingdoms to come. And behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Four winds, that is, from all the directions of heaven. Winds representing the sum total of divine forces working in the created order and stirring it up. The seas representing, as is typical in the Old Testament, Mankind, Isaiah speaks of the nations as like the seas that are foaming and that are roaring and the waves that are moving, the forces that are animating and driving mankind under these beasts. And in verse 3, the four beasts come up from the sea. These are empires, these are kings that rise out of humanity, each different from the other. These are Kingdoms that rise up, overflowing like invading hordes. Now remember, if you think that idea of beasts is unusual, remember how the Soviet Union was likened to a bear? And how the United States has an eagle that represents it? You know, interestingly, Ben Franklin wanted to have the national symbol of the United States a turkey. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? But you see how this is the way he's thinking. These beasts represent these nations. So that'll give you an idea this is not far removed from what we do today. So in verse 4, now let's look at the beasts, same as Daniel 2, in the order to come. The first was like a lion. This is the Babylonian Empire. It had eagle's wings. Here's a lion with eagle's wings. And I watched till its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the earth. Notice that these are kingdoms that are being acted upon by another force. This is God's perspective. It was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. 
This is again the vision of the Babylonian Empire. Jeremiah and Ezekiel also liken Babylon to a lion. The lion is, of course, the king of beasts. The eagle is the king of birds. This means the king of an empire with the swiftness of an eagle and the power of a lion, all corresponding to the head of gold in Daniel chapter 2. Jeremiah 50, Nebuchadnezzar is called a lion. And in chapter 49, he is called an eagle. What do you have? A winged lion, which, interesting, was the symbol of the Babylonian empire. Archaeological finds have indicated an eagle, a lion with eagle's wings as the very symbol of Babylon. But its wings are plucked off. Its power is taken away. It is lifted up and made to have a man's heart. Chapter 4 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. He came to realize that all the inhabitants of the earth are reckoned as nothing. And God abases those who walk in pride. Remember God's order? Let the nations know. They are mere men. And so that harks back to that humbling of Nebuchadnezzar we learned in chapter 4. Now the second is a bear, chapter 5, and suddenly another beast, a second like a bear. It, notice, was raised up. It is being acted upon by another force on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. The bear corresponds to the chest and the arms of the statue in Daniel chapter 2. It represents the upper torso of the statue, the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire. It is the empire of Darius in Daniel chapter 6. It is the empire which defeated Belshazzar, as we learned last night, Daniel chapter 5. The bear, heavy and ungainly in its movements, unlike the eagle. The Medo-Persian Empire was not known for its speed. It was raised up on one side. Apparently its paws were up on one side. Most believe this means it denotes the dominance of the Persian part of that empire. Most people have never heard of the Medes, but the Persian part came to dominate. It was dominated by one of the two forces that made it up. Three ribs... It was composed of the kingdoms of Egypt, Lydia, and of Babylon. Those were the three parts of that bear. But as it grew, it desired to devour more. Notice that the bear with the three ribs is told to arise and devour much flesh. The Medo-Persian Empire, while it was slow, was known as the Empire of Conquest. It moved, if you're looking at a map, all the way over to India. It did indeed devour many people. The third beast, verse 6, is the leopard. After this I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. The leopard corresponding to the lower part of the torso of the statue in Daniel chapter 2. This is the Greek empire. The leopard, agile and intelligent, with four wings, two sets of wings. It's not only swift like a bird, it is especially swift. Alexander the Great represented here. His claim to fame was his swiftness. Not as grand as Nebuchadnezzar's empire, but far more quick in what it did. Four heads, probably referring to the four leaders who succeeded Alexander the Great after his untimely death. And we're going to look at that more in chapter 8. Now this is a reminder, again, I want you to notice this. These are not people who really get their power from themselves. Dominion was given to it. Some other power was behind Alexander. And remember, this is being written for the international community in Aramaic. Now, the fourth beast, verses 7 and 8. This is the beast with ten horns. It corresponds to the legs and the feet of the statue in Daniel chapter 2. It refers to the Roman Empire. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. 
It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now note there's really no description of the empire here, just the terrible power that it had to conquer and to destroy and to rule. With the Roman Empire, you either submitted or you were destroyed. And that's depicted here by the beast that has iron in its own power. This is the same as the beast of Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10. A beast that looked like a bear and a lion and a leopard together. Rome took to itself all of the combined strengths of the empires that it had conquered. It is a proper designation of the Roman Empire that assimilated every single thing that it conquered, devouring it and taking it to itself. Ten horns and a little horn referred to in verse 8. I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. The little horn uproots three others. It looked like a man, and it spoke pompous words. These horns, if you look at verse 24, we are explicitly told represent ten kings. The ruling representatives of the empire. Not literally ten, but a complete number of ruling leaders of this empire, the fourth beast, the beast with ten horns that is most like a human being. And that's significant. Now just a note regarding the interpretation of the fourth beast. The fourth beast is not a symbol for any world empire. There's an actual historical progression here. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. This is not a symbol of a revived Roman Empire. Nor is it a symbol of another Roman Empire that would come, that would read into the text what is not there. We know that this empire refers to the empire that was in existence in the time of Christ. Daniel 2.44 In the days of those kings, God would send the little stone that we know to be Christ. So please don't jump to the future here. This represents in its entirety the Roman Empire of Jesus' day that was destroyed in A.D., 476. Now, does that mean it has no significance for today? That's not what we're saying. This is redemptive history. All of these things that are given have lessons. They embody principles and truths that apply in any age. But we must look at this as having an historical fulfillment from the time of Daniel. So these are empires that come, and they are fearful empires. Daniel is afraid. He shakes. He's convulsed. He's in a movie in which he sees all of these things happening, and it's scary, one thing after another. But this is supposed to be from God's perspective. These people don't get their power to themselves. It is given to them. Where was it given to them? That brings us to verses 9 through 14, a contrast to these earthly beasts, a vision of the heavenly courtroom. Verses 9 and 10. In the midst of the mouth speaking pompous words, I watched till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated, his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheel is a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him a thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. What is going on? Remember how John is on the island of Patmos. He has been exiled for his faith. He's on a rocky, craggy, desolate island knowing that his people were being persecuted. He's given visions of the seven churches. He's told of judgment that's going to come to all but one of these churches. And you've got to imagine that John the Apostle must have thought what you and I think so often. Everything's lost. A secular world persecuting the church. And the church isn't even faithful to the Lord. 
Please don't talk about how wicked things are today as if it's so unusual in history. That's exactly what John saw. And then all of a sudden, he's taken up to heaven. And the Lord says, now, let me tell you what's going on backstage. And that's exactly what happens here. Daniel's attention shifts and he is taken backstage, as it were, except backstage is really upstage, where he sees thrones. Remember, Revelation 4, John sees thrones of the elders in heaven. John, keep your perspective, not on the things of the earth. Look who's really governing. Incidentally, notice that heaven is Presbyterian. It's the thrones of the elders who rule from heaven. And it's a plurality of elders as well. And so here he sees thrones that are being set up. And this unique expression in the Bible, the ancient of days, one who is advanced in age or in days, one who is to be venerated for his age, his garments and hair is white, over against the darkness and the filth of the beasts is the purity of this one who is to be revered over against empires and kings that don't last long. Here is the Ancient of Days, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the Father Himself. What a magnificent representation of God the Father. He is the Eternal One displayed as the Patriarch of Patriarchs to be honored above all others. He, Daniel, is the God with whom we have to do. And a wonderful exercise as you wring your hands over the wickedness of the world, wickedness of a president such as the previous one that we had or that we may have in the future, wickedness of the other leaders of the world. Remember before these leaders who don't last long is the ancient of days. Before leaders who it is difficult not to despise because of their wickedness in so many cases. There is the venerable Father, the Ancient of Days. And before all of the sullied characters of the leaders of the world, here's one who is clothed in white. Daniel, for your fear, get a glimpse of God. Notice the fire that's referred to in the last part of verse 9 and also in verse 10. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued forth. Fire, of course, representing almost consistently in the Scriptures the awful judgment power of God. Fires of holiness which will consume the sinner off the face of the earth. Our God is a consuming fire. He will refine and He will punish and He will destroy. Daniel, get your perspective straight. Yes, the leaders of the world will vanquish many and devour. But our God is a consuming fire. There are multitudes of the angelic servants, 10,000 times 10,000 in sparkling raiment white. And that's where the language comes from in verse 10 of Daniel chapter 7. The angelic servants around the throne and there is a judgment that is to be meted out. This is a court that is seated and the books were opened. Our confidence with the wickedness of September 11th is not to say, God didn't have anything to do with this. Our confidence is to say, our God sits in heaven and one day His court will be in session and He'll judge everything perfectly. The courts were opened. The books were opened. Daniel gets a picture of judgment to come. A record of the acts, in this case, of the beastly kingdoms. Not an individual judgment is in view here, but the ongoing judgment of the nations. Again, as in Revelation, John's confidence is not somewhere down the line, many thousands of years down the way, there's going to be an intrusion of God in history to help His people. What confidence is that for saints going through persecution right now in heaven? Our God judges. And that's what Daniel sees. It's again the Old Testament counterpart of what you see in the book of Revelation. That is so sobering and so encouraging. Every action of the nations is written in God's book. You know how judges will have the information on your legal case? 
And that's scary if you're guilty. Our God has the records of all the nations in His book. And that's very sobering. But what's very encouraging is one day He's going to open those books and He'll judge. And in history, He does do that. Judgment is rendered, verses 11 and 12. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. This is the context in which this happens. I watched till the beast was slain, that is the fourth beast, and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. While Daniel sees the judgment throne set up, he continues to hear the arrogant words of the little horn as a kingly representative of the Roman Empire. And that beast, including its horns, is destroyed by divine intervention, not necessarily immediately. You know, it's a good thing that God doesn't destroy even hostile powers immediately. You know the reason why the Lord didn't let the Israelites go into Israel and take it over all at once? They couldn't have governed that whole baby. You know, anarchy is a whole lot worse than tyranny, folks. And so when people say, we want immediate judgment, get rid of that wicked government right now. You want to live with anarchy? I don't. Bloodbaths in the street like the French Revolution. God will judge, but he's merciful enough to take his time to do it systematically. Judgment is rendered in verse 12. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. A rather difficult thing. This is almost an afterthought. They'd had their rules taken, taken away, and yet their influence remained in the Roman Empire. Part of the genius of the Roman Empire is it took up the administrative skills of a Nebuchadnezzar. It took up the devouring power of Persia or Medo-Persia. It had something of the swiftness in the outer realms of, Ale- of Alexander the Great. And so these empires had their dominion taken away as nations, and yet their influence was prolonged for a season and a little time, and yet now that is also going to be gone. That's why we call this ancient history. It is gone. Now this fulfillment, remember, is not something that is future to us. It is past with the dissolution of the Roman Empire. Now, verses 13 and 14, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him, and then, and highlight these verses, to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. One like the Son of Man. Not like the beasts, but different than a mere man. It is not coincidentally Christ's own favorite title. He is the Son of Man. Not a shadow of Him is given here, but the reality Here, this is Christ seen in His pre-incarnate state. This One who came with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. He is the One who has the privilege of deity. This referring quite clearly to His ascension. It is Jehovah who rides in the cloud. It is Jehovah Jesus who is taken up in a cloud into heaven. Acts chapter 1 and verse 9. That picture that we are given in Acts from a human perspective is given in this heavenly perspective from the throne of God. The disciples see Jesus go up. Daniel prophetically sees Jesus coming to God the Father as the ascended one to receive his kingdom. Jesus said, I go to the Father, that is, I go to the Ancient of Days, the great patriarch, with the result in verse 14 that he shall be the stone who will smite the mountains and fill the whole earth. He will be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and the kingdom the one which will not be destroyed. A decision against the Roman Empire has already been rendered with Christ's ascension. And that kingdom is to go from those beasts to Christ Himself and He will prevail. Is that not what the Scriptures themselves so clearly teach? 
Psalm 2 and verse 8. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. The beasts had what seemed to be the end of the earth. Jesus will get it all. The Lord said to my Lord, that is Christ himself, David's Lord, was the one who spoke, saying to Jehovah himself, the Son spoke to the Father, the Father spoke to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Father seated himself at his right hand in the heavenly places. What? Paul says, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he's put all things under his feet. Past tense, by his ascension, all things put under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Now remember, God's victories aren't immediate. He takes time. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That again is not future to us. It is a present reality beginning in the time of the Roman Empire. From the resurrection and ascension of Christ, the death knell of the beast is pronounced. Jesus has given a kingdom, the church, which shall never be destroyed. And brothers and sisters, if you don't have that, then you cut the artery out of the reason for missions. The reason for missions is not to go in the world and snatch one or two people here and there to get them out from hell. The reason for missions is to bring the good news that Jesus Christ is King. He is Lord. He is Savior. Before Him every knee will bow. And we have the privilege in this life to bow in repentance and faith rather than bow in judgment and damnation. We have the privilege of living as citizens of the King who's come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. We have come to tell people that their persecuting beastly leaders shall not last long because Jesus is King. We've come to tell people who are in darkness that they need not live in darkness, but the King of the ages is the light of the world. We need not. We come to tell people who live mired in all forms of error that Jesus Christ, who is the King, is the truth. And we go back to these historical things to tell them most assuredly that even though we do not see Jesus now in the flesh, He is King. He's been given a dominion and glory and a kingdom, and you're meant to serve Him. You're meant to serve Him. That's what missions is all about. Here is the very heart and soul. Here is the aorta of the heart of missions. But you've still got this problem of the fourth beast and his work. And this is where it really gets exciting. Because remember, Daniel's getting specifics here, even though it is in prophetic form. Verses 19 through 22, the fourth beast and its work. Remember verses 15 to 18, Daniel's given a little clue to the interpretation. We've covered that. But now in verse 19, Daniel says, I've got a particular concern about this fourth beast. Now that's very practical, isn't it? Because we say Christ is king. He'll reign until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. But what do you do with radical Islam? What do you do with persecuting communists? What do you do with the Adolf Hitlers? You have a particular concern for these, and Daniel did as well. I wanted to know the truth about that fourth beast. And he wasn't rebuked. They didn't say to him, well, you should just bow in awe over the Son of Man who's given a kingdom. Daniel's concerned. He's agitated over these things. I want to know about the fourth beast. And so certain attention is given to that one because this one, verse 7, is exceedingly dreadful. He's in a movie and he sees this beast with iron teeth and with bronze claws and it devours the earth. And Daniel's concerned about what's going to happen to this thing. Verse 20. And the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before which three fell namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words whose appearance was greater than his fellows that's the one he's concerned with that one with ten horns which is as part of the beast has another horn that vanquishes the three preceding it it is greater than the others and there's a focus you'll notice particularly on its human traits 
Not a beast here so much as one that is powerful with the eyes and the mouth of a man. A man. Verses 21 and 22. I was watching in the same horn that embodies the power of man was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came. And a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. This is a distinct aspect of the reign of the Son of Man. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. The little horn wages war against the saints until the Ancient of Days renders a judgment in the favor of the saints. Not referring to the second coming of Christ. The Ancient Days came means the Ancient of Days acted. Coming in the Bible does not always mean a bodily return, although there will be a consummation of it when Christ in the body returns at the last day. God comes with power. God comes in revival. God comes and changes hearts. God comes and inhabits our praises. God comes to our worship. Here God acts on behalf of the people. He is not, as it were, inactive. He shows Himself powerful on behalf of the saints. They receive a favorable judgment. The holy ones, a quality, those who are separated under the king, they really live for him, even in the midst of the raging of the fourth beast, will possess the kingdom, even as the Israelites possessed the land. That didn't mean there weren't enemies. That didn't mean there weren't battles. It didn't mean that they never failed. But they were given in history a place in which they were to fight their battles. The saints would supplant the kingdom of the fourth beast and enjoy the benefits of the rule of Christ over the nations. Things that would happen in history. Remember that Israel was a kingdom, but it was given a land, but it had a battle to fight before it could enjoy those blessings. And so here, there is an interval of time from the inauguration of the kingdom and His first coming to the actual victory of it. All is under God's sovereignty. He's going to bring down kings so He can exalt His people. This is a heavenly perspective on what is to come. You see, if you know anything about theatrical productions, it's not what goes on on the stage that's the big deal. You've got to see what goes on backstage. To be sure all the props are in place, to be sure everything is done so that what you see on stage is just right. And that's what Daniel sees, what goes on backstage. Now verses 23 to 25, the identity of the fourth beast. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on earth. Again, that's the Roman Empire. It's going to be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who will arise from this kingdom and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first one. He shall subdue three kings. Well, let's back up a little bit. Verse 23. Verse 23 speaks not only of Rome, but in this devouring the whole earth, trampling it and breaking it in pieces. It speaks of Roman imperialism. From 509 B.C., which was the beginning of the Republic of Rome, the fourth beast conquered Italy, Carthage, Spain, Macedonia, the Seleucids, that is part of Asia Minor, or Syria, devouring the entire known world by either treachery or by alliance. It trampled down other nations. It broke them in pieces. There was the ruthless suppression of all rebellion and the destruction of cities as object lessons. Carthage and Corinth in particular, utterly vanquished by Rome as object lessons of what they do to you if you resist it. Quite literally, trampling and breaking in pieces the whole known world. Ten horns, ten kings. Kings is a general term for leaders. Belshazzar was called a king. Darius, a king. Ten, a figure of a complete number of 
all of the angelic hosts that can't be numbered called 10,000 times 10,000. Probably the ten horns are referring to the extensive government network of the Republic. That Roman Republic was magnificent in its governmental administration. Remember, it took up the administration of the first beast. And so what you had in Rome, in its distinctiveness, you had the patricians in the Senate, you had the consuls who led, you had the concilium plebis, the plebeians, representatives, what we would call our house of representatives, representing the common people. There was local self-government, there were governors of the provinces, there was a many-faceted government of the leaders, probably called here the Ten Kings. But there's another horn, verse 24. Another one will rise up after them. He will be different than these who mark the Republic, the early part of the Roman Empire, and subdue three kings. Here is another horn. It is a little horn. Some regard this as Nero, but that would probably be too specific a reference. We don't know how Nero subdued three kings. Better probably referring to the Caesars. The Caesars, like Julius Caesar, who effectively ruled the Roman Empire from the mid-first century before Christ. The Caesars did what that could be likened to subduing three kings? They deprived the Senate of its power. They deprived the plebeians of its power. They deprived the provincial governments of its power. That's why Caesar was assassinated because of the autocratic takeover of power that would later be consummated by his followers. Thus Caesar became the prominent leader of the empire and he was distinctly different than those who led in the republic. What is the character of that little horn in verse 25? He speaks pompous words against the Most High and he will persecute the saints of the Most High. And he will intend to change times of the law. Then the saints will be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. He will speak words against the Most High. Literally, he will speak words at the side of the Most High. Parallel to, on a par with, the words of the Most High. He will raise himself as high as God. He will speak great things, pompous words, words of blasphemy. He would exalt his human claim to divinity. Man making himself out to be as God. The Roman Empire embodied what Adam and Eve thought they would do when they sinned in the garden. You will be as gods. And the devil's rule over all of the kingdoms of the earth is to work in them irrevocably that more and more and more they will seek to be exactly like God. That's what Rome did. It's why a man becomes the embodiment of the Roman Empire. The cult of the emperor, Julius Caesar, established a college to celebrate his divinity. He was divinus. He regarded himself as God. Caesar Augustus, the revered one, Caligula, the Roman emperor in the first century, sought to place his own statue in the temple of the Jews. Domitian, at the end of the first century, Anno Domini, wrote this directive, Our Lord and God instructs you to do this. I am Dominus e Deus. I am Lord and God. The more, most aggravated pride that could be known to man, even more aggravated than Nebuchadnezzar. A man seeking to make himself out to be God. But in doing that, they would seek to literally wear out the saints of the Most High. Again in verse 25, persecute is to wear out, to wear out a garment by abuse is the idea. John Calvin, in his excellent commentary on these chapters, said, No war was ever carried on so continually and professedly against the church as those which occurred after the Caesars arose and after Christ was made manifest to the world. For the devil was then most enraged against it, and God also relaxed the reins to prove the patience of his people. Saints were crucified. They were sewn into animal skins and thrown to mad dogs in the arena. They were placed on red-hot iron chairs until they either denied their faith or they died, covered with pitch, 
They were nailed to posts of pine and burned as human torches to amuse the crowd. And the love of many did wax cold as Jesus predicted. See, brothers and sisters, please don't get Tim LaHaye's stuff and try to read what this says about the future. Get Fox's Book of Martyrs and read what this tells us about the past. That's what it's about. About how these things really happened in the Roman Empire. He even thought to change times and the law. Caesar did change the calendar. The seventh month was named July in honor of Julius Caesar. Nero wanted April changed to Neronius after his own name. They attempted to make the entire world conform to Roman law. It was the hallmark of their power. And the saints were given into his hand three or to his time, into his hand, time and times and half a time, figurative of a period of testing. Trial, trial doubled, and then trial abruptly cut off. Is it not interesting? Persecution of God's people in the first century began under Nero and Domitian. It was severe persecution, but it was local. But then it was doubled in severity. In the mid-third century, under the Decian persecution, the goal was to root out Christianity throughout the entire empire. You either sacrificed to the gods and to the emperor, or you died. Time. Times. A doubling of times. At the end of the third century and the early fourth century, Diocletian and Galerius ordered the Christian faith terminated. Do you realize that? You think it's bad in our country? By the order of the emperor, as of the end of the third century, Christianity was to be obliterated from the earth. Christians were hacked to pieces. They were burned. They were drowned. They were beheaded. They were crucified. Their tongues and their eyes were cut out. Families were forcibly separated. And humanly speaking, there was no chance for the Christians. I see how practical this is. See how bad it is in our culture. Nothing like this. You see why Daniel shook in his boots at these things. You would too if you knew they were coming. But in verses 26 and 27, there's a judgment of the beast. Don't you love it? But the court shall be seated. The court, verses 9 and following, shall have its session. The enemies of the saints are the enemies of God. And God is infinitely more powerful than His enemies. And let me tell you this. Your God is infinitely more concerned for the church than even you are. And He puts the court in session. And they shall take away His dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Literally unto the end. Not an instantaneous destruction again. It would be gradual, it would be by degrees, and yet it would be sure because it was decreed. In the late 3rd century, the army usurped the role of the Caesars. There were civil wars, there were foreign invasions, there was economic decline, there was a devaluation of money, there were barbarian invasions, and even though Rome had said, eliminate the Christians, God so worked in the social forces that they couldn't do it. And in 476 A.D., Rome was completely sacked by the barbarians. You see how God comes in judgment in a nation. It is not always dramatic in once, but over a long period of time. And I would suggest there are the signs of it in our own nation right now. You want a commentary in the United States of America? Read Edward Gibbons, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Read about the first century. And it's exactly like our day. Feminizing of men toleration of homosexuality and all forms of perversion, and so on. God began the judgment in the first century, but it wasn't consummated for 400 years. Just like the three empires before it, the fourth beast is also slain and destroyed. But something had to take its place. That is the fifth kingdom, verse 27. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people, the saints of the Most High, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey Him. A.D. 311, in the very midst of severe empire-wide persecution, Emperor Galerius was smitten with a horrible disease. The one who said, we shall destroy the people of this God. 
was inexplicably stricken with a horrible disease. And he recanted and issued a decree of toleration. He was afraid of that God. And in A.D. 313, Emperor Constantine came to power. There was the Edict of Milan in which all Christianity was tolerated. All confiscated Christian property, personal and corporate, was to be restored. And there was an unexpected, abrupt halt to the persecution. Half a time. See? Time. Persecution. Times. Double the severity. Half a time. Persecution. Abruptly. Stopped. Edward Gibbon, writing about this period, said, who incidentally was no friend of Christianity, while the Roman Empire was invaded by open violence or undermined by slow decay, a pure and humble religion gently insinuated itself into the minds of men. It grew up in silence and obscurity, derived new vigor from opposition. See that? It derived new vigor from persecution. You know what it is to persecute the church? It's trying to put out fire with gas. And finally erected the triumphant banner of the cross on the ruins of the capital. Following the devastating invasions which overwhelmed the western half of the empire, the gap left by the Caesars, remember the little horn, was filled by a powerful new agency, the Christian church. That mean everyone in the church was saved? No. That's never the case at any time in church history. Did that mean it was a pure church? No, neither was the first century church. You want to go back to the first century church? Pick the one you want. Drunkards at the Lord's Supper, people denying the bodily return of Christ, people denying the doctrine of justification, people taking one another to law courts. Which one do you want? Charismatic confusion in the churches? Pick your one from the pure first century church. But it was still the Christian church. And out of its bosom came the great Augustine, the pious Bernard, the reformers Hussein Tyndale, and the leaders of the Reformation themselves. The little stone had become a great mountain, and it was filling the earth, just as Daniel had seen, just as Daniel had prophesied. Victory number six, the sovereignty of God who raises up kings and brings them down. The sovereignty of God who says, don't you be on the defensive about your faith. Don't be arrogant, don't be harsh, but don't you be defensive. You may not sing the hymn that's so common in charismatic churches, our God reigns, our God reigns, our God reigns. But whether you sing it or not, you better believe it. Because that's the message we bring to the earth. To people beset by their own sin and guilt and impurity. A king, how gracious, who says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Come to the throne of the King of Kings, and I'll give you rest. And brothers and sisters, that kingdom is going to fill the whole earth. And the knowledge of the glory of that God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Amen and amen. Let's stand and let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you that you are given all authority on heaven and on earth and you've given us a millennium of history past to demonstrate to us how perfectly you fulfill your own words. Oh God, energize us to believe every jot and tittle you have given us in Holy Scripture. Energize us to go forth from this glorious mountain to speak to others of Mount Zion, the place where Jesus the King rules. Oh God, deliver us from the arrogance and brashness and hate that is all too often marked your people. Fill us with the meekness and lowliness of Jesus Christ, the King. But, oh God, fill us with his boldness, that we might declare to other his cross 
by which he disarmed principalities and powers, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, declaring to people the resurrection by which Jesus is shown to be the one who is the great victor over our greatest enemy, death. And Lord, don't let us cower before any of the beasts of this world. For if you surely vanquished these powers of old, will you not surely vanquish the powers of our day? Supplant them, we ask, one by one in your perfect time by the gracious kingdom of Jesus the King, in whom we pray. Amen. We'll start at ten minutes till.